If you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, go ahead and open them to Colossians chapter 3, and we're going to be in verses 5 through 11 this morning. Um, the, the text that actually goes together, as you'll see in a little bit, we're actually going to read uh, chapter 3, verses 5 through 17, uh, but we're only going to make it through verse 11 today, so I've kind of made this a two-part sermon uh, this week and next week. Now, the title of this sermon is Guillotines, Garments, and the Gospel. Colossians 3, 5 through 17. Have uh, you ever watched someone respond to something in an over-the-top way and thought, well, that was a bit extreme. Maybe uh, an action that doesn't seem like that big of a deal, and then a response that seems far too intense. Many people respond to Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 5, 29 through 30 this way, where Jesus says, If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Uh, while there's Certainly a lot to interpret in that text. The meaning of Jesus is clear. Uh, dealing with sin decisively is essential to the Christian life. Dealing with sin in a serious way isn't too extreme. In fact, James tells us in James chapter 1 that desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Today, we'll see Paul saying something similar to Jesus. But before we jump into the text itself, I want us to quickly understand a core truth here. Uh, everything that Paul is about to say rests upon the truth of the gospel that he's been proclaiming to us up to this point in the letter. He's just finished telling us in chapter 2 that we as Christians, those who have repented and believed, have union with Christ. We've been crucified with him, buried with him, and resurrected with him to new life. So everything that Paul's going to say here in chapter 3 is in light of that. In other words, these commands aren't a do this or else type of thing. They're a because you are type of thing. Because you are a new person in Christ, therefore. Uh, this is kind of Paul's M.O. in all of his letters. He, he writes theology, or what we're to believe, followed by application, or how we should live. One commentator says it this way. He says, for Paul, doctrine demands duty. Creed determines conduct. Facts demand Acts. That order is essential for us. Throughout the Bible, the indicative precedes the imperative. So who God is and what he's done, statements of fact, come before statements of command. Even take, for example, the Ten Commandments. Right before giving his people commands, Exodus chapter 20, verse 2, he says, I am the Lord your God. 
There's a statement of fact. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. So here's who I am and what I've done. Therefore, the Ten Commandments, do this. So keep that in mind as we walk through this text today. Let's dive in. Colossians 3, verses 5 through 17. This is the word of the Lord. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. As I shared earlier, this is going to be a two-part sermon through this text because I believe this whole section that I just read goes together. Um, today we're going to make it through verse 11, and then next week we'll make it um, verses 12 through 17. So here's a little bit of how this whole section breaks down. Point one, murdering sin in verses 5 through 11. Point two, putting on fresh clothes in verses 12 through 14. And then point three, a glorious recipe in verses 15 through 17. So today we'll hit point one, murdering sin, in verses 5 through 11. So starting back in verse 5, Paul's main point is this. Put sin to death. Murder it. And then he quickly lists two categories of sin. Sexual sin. And then, speech sin. Again, to be clear, Paul, like Jesus in Matthew 5, is speaking about killing in a spiritual sense. He's saying, deal decisively with sin in your life. Don't give it breathing room. Don't leave it on life support or, or let it hang around at all. Don't play with it at all. Kill it. Romans chapter 8, verse 13 says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you 
live. Dealing with sin decisively leads to life. Look with me again at our text. Point 1a, he deals with sexual sin, verses 5 and 6. He says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. So Paul starts with a sin list of sexual nature. And I don't need to tell you that this is one of the more prevalent parts of our culture today. You can't even watch a toothpaste commercial without sex being sold to you. Our world is saturated with sex and sexual immorality. Now, I don't need to persuade you that that's true. We see more with our eyes in a month than our grandparents' generation saw in a lifetime. Now, I just want to note that this list here in the text isn't meant to be exhaustive. It's not as if you can read this list and say, Nope, I don't fit neatly into any of those categories, so... I must be sin-free. Paul seems to be addressing some specific sins that he knew were prevalent at Colossae, but that doesn't mean that we get a pass. Paul gives a similar list in Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 21, but he includes some crucial words for us at the end that I want us to note. He says this, he says, Now the works of the flesh are evident, Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. You see that? And things like these, he says. It's a catch-all phrase. Paul never means for his sinless, so to speak, to be exhaustive. But he lists name-brand sins as common examples to get at his point. Now, back to our text. Paul lists sins that, unfortunately, are all too common, even in the church. Remember, he's not writing to the world out there in this letter. He's writing to Christians in here. He's writing based on the assumption that his recipients have union with Christ and are still dealing with some of these sins. The first sin that, in light of our union with Christ, that Paul says that we should murder is sexual immorality. Paul uses this word, porneia, which is where we get the word pornographic. This means every kind of immoral sexual relation. So I want us to understand this first and foremost. God created sex, and he created it as a good gift within his boundaries. That's a, a, a bedrock truth that we must understand first and foremost. In his book, Hole in Our Holiness, which I've recommended a number of times and can't recommend enough, it's a book, Hole in Our Holiness, by Kevin DeYoung, and he says this about this word porneia. He says, the simplest way to understand porneia is to think about the things that would make you furious and heartbroken if you found out someone was doing them with your husband or wife. If someone shook your wife's hand, you would not be upset. 
If someone gave a casual side hug to your husband, it probably wouldn't bother you. A kiss on the cheek or even a peck on the lips in some cultures might be appropriate. But if you found out that another person had sex with your wife, or saw her naked, or touched certain parts of her body, you would be furious. If you uh, found, another, found out another person made out with your husband, or talked about sexual activities, or made certain gestures, you would be heartbroken. Why? Because these are all activities that are appropriate for a married couple, but are inappropriate when practiced outside of the lawful relationship of a man and a woman in marriage. So, sex in the covenant bond of marriage is a good gift from God. But anything immoral outside of that falls into this category of porneia, or, or sexual immorality. And we've got to remember here that our goal in life and in our relationships, first and foremost, is to glorify God. Not to get as close to sinning as possible without going over the line. Second, we have to know that the Christian sexual ethic isn't what saves you. The good news of Jesus is what saves you. But the Christian sexual ethic is a response to that. It's part of the fruit of who Christians are. Paul says, put to death sexual immorality because of God's grace to you. Now, moving on. The next sin we're to murder is this word, impurity. This word is even more broad than porneia. It involves not just the physical, but also our poisoned imaginations, our minds, and our hearts. You don't need physical contact or even a computer screen to be impure. It's a contamination of mind and of heart. Then Paul says, passion, this Greek word, pathos, which in this context specifically means lust. At its heart, lust is pure selfishness. It's unloving, and as one commentator says, all about me, 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 and my self-gratification, not ultimately concerned with the welfare of the object of that lust. Paul says, put these things to death. Finally, we're to murder evil desire and covetousness. Most Bible interpreters here don't think that Paul's actually picking up a new topic. These words are in the context of sexual sin. Evil desire, desiring, and then coveting something that's not yours. Now, when a pastor preaches on a sexual vice list like this, it can be easy just to kind of roll your eyes and think, here we go again, Christian Puritanism at its finest. But look at what Paul says in verse 6. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Come on, Drew. I, I thought you were going to soften what you just said. Back off of it a little bit. No. These sins deserve the full wrath of God. These sins are part of what's wrong with the world. And God is going to do something about it, according to verse 6. But, before you tune me out, 
Consider the following. Mark Mano asks us to reflect on this. He says this. If this grisly list seems only to confirm people's worst fears about what Christians seem to be obsessed with, then simply ask this. What is it like to be the object and therefore victim of each of these on the list? We go lightly on ourselves when we are the perpetrator, but we never do when we are the victim. Surely that reveals everything we need to know. Ouch and amen. The fact that God's wrath is coming on these sins is a good and just thing. He will put things right. So, what if I've already committed these sins, incurring the just wrath of a holy God, you might be asking. Is there no hope for me? Look at verse 7. There's good news. Verse 7. He says, In these you too once walked when you were living in them. Paul gives a very similar list in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And then he says almost the same exact thing. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 11. He lists out all of these sins. And then he says, And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So hear this loud and clear. If you've committed any of these sins and you're a Christian, you're forgiven because of Jesus' substitutionary death on the cross. When his hands and feet were nailed to the cross, your sin was nailed there too. It was paid for in full. You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified or made right with God in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That's the good news of Jesus Christ. If you're not a Christian and you've committed these sins, there's good news for you too. You also can be forgiven today through turning and, and trusting, through repenting and believing in Jesus as your only hope. Because we love you, we're begging you to do this right now. now understand that God's sexual ethic is good and beautiful, not prude and punitive. The commands that he gives us in his word aren't arbitrary. They're the best way to live here on earth. They lead to flourishing and fullness. For you parents out there, you know this well. When you give your kids rules, it's not because you just want to make their lives harder. You give them rules because you know that's what's best for them to stay out of danger and to mature into fully formed human beings. In the context of sexual sin, check this out. Proverbs chapter 6, verses 27 and 28, says this. It says, Can a man carry fire next to his chest in his clothes and not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? That's wisdom. 
He's saying, if you play with fire, you're going to get burned. So in the famous words of John Owen, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. So God's word says to put these sins to death. But Paul continues on, verses 8 and 9. He says, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another. So if the first list was about sexual sin, this next list is about speech sin. And crucial to Paul's overall argument is the verb here. Put away or put off. It's a word that carries with it in the context of throwing away dirty clothes. Next week, we're actually going to see the kind of clothes that we're meant to put on. But first, God's word tells us that we need to get rid of some things. And the first word is anger. You might be saying, come on, that's not a speech sin. To which uh, I point you to Jesus' words in Mark chapter 7, verses 20 through 23. Jesus said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of a man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Jesus' point is that these sins start in the heart, but they never remain there. They display themselves and actually come out. Same thing with anger and wrath, which is anger actually boiling over. These things will destroy an individual even if they're not spilling out. If you're harboring anger, you're not at peace. But when anger and wrath do spill out, relationships get damaged and destroyed. Sometimes physical harm is done. There's carnage everywhere. This isn't God's design for us as Christians or as humans. Now, I didn't point this out earlier, but in the sexual sin list, Paul moved from specific acts down to the motive behind them, or idolatry, he says. Here, With the the speech sin list, he's doing the exact opposite. He starts with the motive of anger, and then he moves toward specific acts. So next he says, malice. One commentator notes that malice bespeaks a viciousness of mind. It is the malignant attitude which plans evil and rejoices when misery falls on the one it hates. What a terrible way to live. It's poisonous to you and to everyone around you. And again, malice usually doesn't remain in the mind for long. It usually spills over into the next word that Paul uses, slander. The word's blasphemia. You can hear the word blasphemy there. Defaming people. This is... Another one of those sins that, unfortunately, has become totally acceptable in the church, in the broader evangelical world. 
We can just kind of hop on Twitter and fire away, damaging brothers' and sisters' reputations, defaming them, slandering them, blasphemy. It's not playful. It's not just blowing off some steam. It's blasphemy, and it's a sin. Paul says, put it away. He continues, and obscene talk from your mouth. Foul, obscene, abusive speech. Do you ever say that this describes what comes out of your mouth? This isn't befitting for a Christian. Again, your speech isn't what saves you. But because you've been saved, your speech should change. With all of these sins of speech, we don't have the option of just saying, I didn't mean it, or I was just kidding. Real damage is done to the person on the other end. Just like with the first list, consider this. Consider what it's like to be on the receiving end of anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk. Think about that. And last but not least, set apart by itself, Paul says, verse 9, do not lie to one another. Lying it is a sin against God and against man. Satan lied to Adam and Eve in the garden. Cain lied to God about Abel. Ananias and Sapphira lied to the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts. Lying is always the opposite of loving. When we deceive our brothers and sisters, it's destructive to unity in the church. Look what... Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, Ephesians 4, verse 25, he says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. The God of the Bible is a God of truth. When we lie, we're not reflecting his character. We're actually robbing him of glory. We're deceiving those who are created in his image. Do you see the seriousness of this? Unity in the church and God's fame are at stake here. Now, I'm being repetitive here, but it's because the text is repetitive. Notice that there's no or else here. It's not clean up your mouth and don't lie or else. It's do these things because. We're not capable of doing any of this under our own strength. I want to be clear about that. We're only able to obey because of Christ's grace to us. Martin Lloyd-Jones once said this. He said, I would rather make bricks with no straw than try to obey the Sermon on the Mount in my own strength. That's Paul's point here. He's just given us a list of sins that we're to put to death and then discard. And then look, verses 9 and 10, he says, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, 
and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. See what he's saying there? Throw off those old, smelly, nasty, polluted clothes because you've stripped off the old self. What's the old self? It's the old sin nature that died with Christ and was buried with Christ. It's the truth of what was symbolized in your baptism into Christ Jesus. Because you're unified with Christ and because your old self is dead, Paul's saying, stop clinging to it. Put off the old self. And then, put on a new self. What's the new self? It's the new nature that rose with Christ when he rose from the grave. It's the truth of what was symbolized in your baptism into Christ Jesus. Because you're unified with Jesus, and because you've been given a new life, live it. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, Paul says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, that word that, that Tyler preached on last week, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So if you're a Christian, are you living more like the old self or the new? Does your life look alive or dead? Is it poisonous or prosperous spiritually? A life that's firmly rooted in Christ is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So. Do you look like Jesus? No, I don't mean that the painting of flowing locks and a well-kept beard. Does your character reflect his? A Christian life is one of renewal, being renewed in the knowledge of God. So do you know him? Not just know about him, but know him. The more you do, the more you'll want to look like him. In conclusion, I want you to see what the result of all of this is. When we murder sin, when we throw out polluted speech, look what happens in the church. Verse 11. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, Slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. True unity. Christian unity is so radical that it transforms relationships. When sin is killed and the new self is actually lived out, racial barriers are destroyed. There's not Greek and Jew. Religious barriers are wrecked, circumcised and uncircumcised. Cultural barriers are demolished, barbarian, Scythian. And social barriers are shattered, slave and free. Christians, this kind of unity doesn't happen by accident. 
It happens when sin is killed and righteousness is renewed. I, I hear so many people bemoaning the lack of unity in the church today. But are those same people killing sin and being renewed in their own lives? I'm afraid the answer is often no. So before you complain about the lack of unity in the church, I encourage you to examine yourself. Take time to repent. This kind of unity that Paul's describing here in verse 11, it's beautiful. It's worth every ounce that you've got. It's a kind of unity that according to Ephesians 3, chapter 10, displays God's manifold wisdom. When this kind of unity exists in the church, people actually take notice of it. They ask questions because it's not normal. The gospel gets showcased. Our own preferences are not all. Our own affinities are not all. Our own comfort is not all. But Christ is all and in all. So brothers and sisters, murder sin. Throw off the old clothes of spoiled speech. Because you've been given new life, create and cling to unity in the body of Christ. Today, we're going to finish a little bit different than we normally do. Uh, before we jump into taking the Lord's Supper together, uh, we're going to sing just a, a couple of extra songs and, and actually take time to reflect on this text and, and repent if necessary, clinging to the forgiveness that we have in Christ. So between you and the Lord, I want you to take the next several minutes just to ask the Spirit to convict you through this text. Let's pray.